So, I'd like to uh, request your kind uh, attention. You've been doing well. Second day, you know, yet another scratch on the walls of your cave tonight. And <laughs> just <clears throat> another five to go. So, I was uh, thinking of giving you some kind of a map today. It's, it's no secret that early Buddhist teachings favors meditation. And um, when we actually look at where that, what is said about meditation, it, it comes as a surprise that A, we don't have a clear word for the Pali in Pali language, in the canonical language of, of early Buddhism, um, f- for what we translate with meditation. Yeah. So, meditation is a funny word coming from the uh, Christian tradition. Meditari means to think. And it seems somewhat ironic that precisely this term has been chosen <laughs> to convey what many of you will, I'm sure, agree with me is, is not really about thinking, but about a particular relationship to thinking. So I don't really know who invented this meditation business as the translation for a number of possible terms that, that are candidates to be uh, meditation in Pali. Maybe the most common one, I think Christina has already mentioned it, is a term called bhavana, which basically comes from agriculture, and it means cultivation, calling into being. And um, there's lots of kinds of cultivation in in early Buddhism. So there's uh, cultivation that has to do with our relationship to the physical world, kaya bhavana, anything from starting with this body to our planet. All this would be a dimension of what the Buddha thinks is worthy to be cultivated. Then we have a second type of cultivation, which refers to our social world, our relationship to the social context in which we live, called sila bhavana, which has something to do with ethics and what we do with others and what others do to, to us and how we hold and manage this. It's also a big topic, not necessarily covered by the term meditation, I believe, and then we have a third big domain called cultivation of mind, citta bhavana, which this context means learning to still the mind and learning to create the paradigms of empathy, you know, those famous four Brahma-viharas, which have, in my understanding of Buddhist teaching, become more and more and more important as my life goes on, you know. Initially, I thought Brahma Viharas, that was for people who basically couldn't meditate, you know, at least, at least they could be nice, you know. <laughs> so it was kind of the soft, the soft option, you know, there was the Samadhi Wallas, you know, and then there was, you know, those who were nice, you know. I was quite snooty about this, and um, I was also growing up in two traditions which... Uh, are not very famous for having made much of Brahma Viharas. One is Japanese Soto Zen, which 
isn't exactly, it has many virtues, but it isn't exactly famous for having a lot to say about uh, fourfold dimensions of universal empathy. And the other one is the Thai forest tradition, who again also has many virtues, but uh, you have to actually walk quite far to find teachers who explicitly teach not just one, but all four of those Brahma Viharas. Some of these people exude them, but by natural means more than by uh, studious, uh, uh, studious application of the forest uh, tradition's teachings. The second part of that third type of development, cultivation, is about stillness. Yeah, it's basically the, the practice is called samatha. The result is called samadhi. The result is sweet. The practice is not always sweet. The, the result has to do with integration in a big way and unification. And the practice uh, often has to do with some degree of repetitiveness uh, and with a voluntary, a deliberate focusing and for at least a part of the time narrowing one's focus you know so this is a big area of development that the buddha placed great great weight on and finally the fourth area of development is called development of wisdom the cultivation of wisdom so panya bhavana so you have these four huge areas of development one about our physical relationship, one about our social relationships, one about stilling the mind and making the mind empathetic, and the fourth one, uh, learning to understand from asking good questions to complete transformative wisdom. Now the point is simple that, simply that, if we look at what we think by meditation, you know, what meditation has come to mean, uh, it seems that we have lost a little bit of the breadth of these tasks, what is there to be cultivated. If we boil down meditation to me uh, sitting in formal practice on a cushion, practicing mindfulness, observing my thoughts, yeah. we've lost a few bits along the way there. Yeah. So it, it makes sense to be archaeologists of what meditation meant to the Buddha. And if we're trying to do archaeology of what meditation meant to the Buddha, we find this peculiar phenomena that one of the most common patterns how meditation is described, in fact, it's found over two dozen times in the suttas, in the discourses, uh, this is a little story that keeps coming up. And the little story generally runs as, that, as follows. It starts with a young uh, man, it's always a man, um, with black hair from good family who has faith and goes forced shaves off hair and beard, becomes a monastic, and then uh, starts to practice meditation, goes on arms round, eats his food, washes his arms bowl and his hands, and then sits down, crosses his legs, keeps his body erect. That's where we get really fascinated. Now, what is he doing? Yeah? And he establishes mindfulness in front of him. And then we say, wonderful, so far so good. And then we'd expect a great detail and fine granularity of explanation, but nothing of that comes. You know, we're told this young man of good family with uh, shaven head, uh, having satiated himself with his arms food, washed his hands and found a suitable place at the foot of a tree on a little bundle of grass uh, in the open in a cave. 
uh, with upright body. This young man now suddenly puts down all the five hindrances, realizes jhanas, has a binya, you know, has super, starts developing uh, extraordinary powers, and not long after he started off, finishes what there was to be finished. And we wonder, have we missed an important bit here? <laughs> Is, can we have that again in slow motion, please? Yeah? So let's, let's go over the details, you know. I'm with you when he crosses his legs, so, yeah. I'm, I'm with you when he's upright. I'm with you when he breezes in and breezes out, when he establishes mindfulness. And then, you know, next bit, all those hindrances go out of the window, all those chanas come into the window, yeah. And bas he's basically done after that. And it becomes obvious when we read this story, it's, it's obvious that we're missing pieces there. Yeah. So some of the pieces that obviously take place, uh, I say that as somebody who has crossed his legs for a few years now and you know, made his body upright and established a little bit of mindfulness in front of me over the years, uh, it has become obvious that there are bits missing in that description. Something is amiss. And it seems quite clear that the Buddha's thought and his people may be following an Indian suspicion that the really important bits you can't put into text. The really important bits of learning take place within a relationship. Yeah? A relationship that takes into account who you are, what you bring to this practice, what your particular hang-ups, but also what your virtues are, where you stand in your process. And that is a bit a text cannot deliver. So it seems that like many other Indian traditions, also Buddhists have ultimately not given a lot of trust to writing things down. In fact, the writing down part has happened a lot later in Buddhist teaching. However, you're going to turn it between the death of the Buddha around the year 400 BC and the appearance of the earliest Pali texts, you have 300 years. Yeah. So in those 300 years, the texts as we have them, the discourses as we have them, have been uh, written, have been, have been compiled, have been collated, have been anthologized, have been grouped, and uh, quite clearly have sustained editorial processes in that. Although it is hard for us to imagine that a human mind could transmit with some accuracy textual material over uh, long times, you have to understand that in India, there was already an existing tradition which was uh, offering training in uh, mnemonic techniques, in phonetic transmissions. Yeah, the, the Vedic and Upanishadic tradition the Buddha found himself surrounded by, and much of his teaching refers to those teachings of the Vedic teachings, Upanishadic teachings, but also of other Indian traditions. The Jainas, for example, all these people knew how to learn things by heart. Their handing down of information, of teaching, was oral. So the Buddha made use of these techniques, and in fact, he collectivized these techniques. While in a, a Vedic tradition, you have a teacher-disciple relationship where one recites and the other learns by rote and rehearses, in the Buddhist tradition, you have groups of people are, that become responsible for handing down text. Yeah? So if you do ever 
listen to chanting, then you know this is where it came from. That was an initial mnemonic technique of how teachings can be transmitted. You know, a disciple, in the words literally of the Buddha, is somebody who listens, yeah? is a listener, a hearer. So learning uh, happened by hearing. Now, we have a great exception to this darth of actual detail, how we go from folding our legs to putting down the hindrances. We have uh, the fortune that we have a huge amount of uh, discourses. The Buddha's teaching was 45 years, and he has uh, said many, many things in those 45 years. And thanks to the textual uh, oral tradition that handed these teachings down, collected these teachings, collated these teachings, anthologized these teachings, grouped these teachings. Um, we have access to bits and pieces of meditational detail that deviate from that story I just gave you, namely leaving out the detail. One of those uh, detailed maps of how to meditate is a group of teachings called Satipatthana. Satipatthana means literally uh, establishing presence of mind. And uh, there are some key texts to that. Famous are uh, some of the Pali versions. The, the Foundations of Mindfulness is one translation. Uh, establishments of Mindfulness is another translation. So basically the Pali tradition alone has already three of those. Then there are several in the Chinese lineage. And there are bits and pieces which have made it into the early Mahayana literature, which is actually a lot earlier than we think. Uh, until recently, we believed that this is much later, but now we know uh, that the writing down of Buddhist texts began with the movement of Mahayana, and it is very likely that the Pali tradition was later in the game. They had to keep up. So, we're in the first century BC, and we have, by now, several hundred years of discourses and teaching pieces on how to establish mindfulness. There's a huge body of teachings. Um, maybe the more interesting pieces of teaching on Satipatthana are not in the Satipatthana suttas themselves, but outside. There are other groups of discourses which hold over 100 smallish, often golden glimpses of how to practice Satipatthana. What I would like to do tonight is rather than go into the detail of the individual exercises that we are given in the Satipatthana teachings, I would look at the kind of overview of Satipatthana. Satipatthana as a map of experience. Yeah. There aren't that many maps of experience in Buddhist teaching. One of the maps is the six sense realms. So looking at our experience in terms of which of our sense fields are affected. So, so much of analytical Buddhism is looking at experience in terms of where does it originate in which sense field? Does it start with touch? Does it start with smell? Does it start with sight? Does it start with listening? Uh, does it start with thinking? Yeah. Remember Buddhism has as a sixth sense field uh, the mind base. That means what you think is not transcendent. That's a very big difference to some of Western thinking and Western philosophy. Thinking is, amongst other things, also a mere sensory experience from a Buddhist point of view. 
So whether you think your teeth into a hamburger or whether you think about uh, the resolution of a mathematical formula, both forms are sensory experiences. You can get hooked on them, you can be appalled by them, uh, you can get indignant or attached to them. All of this is sensory experience. So the ayatanas, the sixth sense field, is one big map. Another big map is the five aspects of experience. So the five aspects of experience, if clung to, the five khandhas, which is a way the Buddha speaks about empirical personality, and he uses this model or this map particularly to um, undo notions of identity. Yeah. Identity in the sense of a soul, in the sense of a, a core essence. Psychologists in here don't get nervous. We're not going to preach psychosis and get people out of their identities. It's about a particular notion of who I am that is at the core of much of our suffering. Um, so the map of the khandhas is about dealing with the notion of self, the notion of who I am and how solid I am. Another map obviously is the four ennobling tasks, yeah, the four uh, basic patterns, uh, how we can approach the givens of our reality, understanding that there is pain, understanding where that pain comes from, understanding that that pain can be arrested, brought to cessation, and understanding the nuts and bolts of how to get out of the pain. That would be another big map. And my understanding is that the Satipatthana are yet another map for what we would call experience. Yeah. So these Satipatthanas uh, tell us basically there are four huge areas in our experience in which we are encouraged to skillfully cultivate first attention and then mindfulness. Yeah. Let me be clear, attention and mindfulness is not the same. It's important to make a distinction there. Uh, the Buddhist psychology is crystal clear in that distinction. One is called manasikara. Attention is called manasikara. It's something that happens every moment. It's a factor of mind that takes place every moment of our conscious experience. The other is called mindfulness. In Pali, this is sati, the sati of anapanasati, the sati of satipatthana, the sati of kayagata sati. It occurs many, many times. It's about as famous as a word can get in Pali. You know, it's, it's on so many charts. Pali, like many li oral literatures, loves charts and lists, and sati holds the, the, basically the top place on being on as many, many, many lists. Yeah. So attention is something we do all the time. Uh, we are generally episodically attentive, and we are topically attentive. So we do, we do it in in little spurts and spots. Yeah? We're quite spotty in our attention. Usually we attend to things that are new or that are interesting or that are particularly loud or particularly unexpected. Yeah? So this is called involuntary attention. Most of our attention is involuntary attention. It feels as if we are, our attention is pulled out of us by the objects of our attention. The... Uh, the neurojargon for this is incentive salience. Yeah. Salience is an interesting term. It means something that jumps forth. Yeah. 
It means something that is jumping forth in respect to its context. Yeah? So you have a hundred green lights and then you have a red light in the middle and guess where your attention goes. Yeah? So this red light has incentive salience. It means our attention just runs to it. Most of our involuntary attention functions along those lines. It just runs to it. The reason why you're tired after a day of sitting around, basically, <laughs> the reason why you're tired is because you are trying to stem the tide of involuntary attention. When you, whenever you practice deliberately attending to something like the breath or your feet or metta practice, you make a, an effort. And you make an effort that goes against the habit formation of your involuntary attentional patterning. And that is effortful. That's why you're tired after sitting around a whole day. Yeah. Meditation takes a lot more effort than it looks like if you just look at it from outside. So, our four satipatthanas, <clears throat> let me name them. The first one has to do with body. It's called, the, the actual exercise is called contemplation of body. But let's just consider it the body, the body dimension. We're encouraged to pay appropriate and skillful attention to dimensions of the body. The second of those satipatthana is called Vedana, and this uh, refers to the degree of pleasure, displeasure, and indifference we experience in our lives. It's important to understand this term correctly. Vedana is not an emotion. It is not about the affective dimension of our experience, and Vedana is also not a sensation. It's not about the energetic or the somatic part of our experience. Vedana is about one thing and one thing only. It's a spectrum term on the, on the axis of pleasure to pain. And somewhere in between is indifference. Okay? So my translation for Vedana after much pondering of this and uh, picking up some scholars that have begun in the late 80s of last century to speak about Vedana in those terms. My preferred translation is hedonic tone. Hedonic, hedone, from Greek, pleasure. It's a bit technical, I admit, but um, I cannot reconcile myself to the common translations of feeling or of sensation because they're not just inaccurate, they're plain wrong, to be honest with you. So it's important to understand the second dimension we are encouraged to pay close and skillful attention to is to how we experience pleasure and how we experience displeasure and what happens when we're meeting with indifference. Very, very powerful form formation in the mind. Much We have a lot of conditioning around maximizing pleasure. Psychologists call this appetitive behavior, approach behavior. Yeah? And we have a lot of conditioning around avoiding displeasure and discomfort and things we don't like. Yeah? Psychologists call this avoidance behavior. Yeah? So this is the second dimension we are encouraged to pay, to learn, to practice forms of mindfulness that are both continuous and that are transformative and that are... Um, Helpful, salubrious. The third dimension 
A third of the Satipatthanas <coughs> is about chitta. Now, the chitta here is basically states of mind. It is mind, the climate of mind. That means mood. It means things like uh, forms of intention, you know, wanting things and not wanting things. In fact, liking and disliking things is already part of that dimension. This is an interesting piece. One of the things that we can learn from this map, that the experience of pleasure and the experience of like often occur in sequence with each other, but they are not inevitably connected. It is possible to be pleased by something without having the mind inclining through like and following. Okay? That's a very, very important piece that make, uh, makes a lot of sense when, when your mind becomes more still. You begin to understand that there is a junction that you have a choice whether you're going to follow something that you like or you're going to avoid something that you dislike. That third dimension is huge area. It has to do with anything that moves our affective life. The color of our mind, the climate of our mind, the mood of our mind, um, the forms, uh, the states that we experience. And you'll notice uh, your mind is capable of going through a number of states during a day. You keep coming, you keep going, you do some walking, you do some sitting. Yeah. There isn't much drama in this, there isn't much change in this, and yet what you experience are totally different states, isn't it? After a while, you sit here and you realize you're inspired, elated, and other days you do exactly the same things and you're bored, you're despondent, you're um, angry. You may be going through all kinds of emotional differing states, and yet you, what you actually do out on the outside, for an observer, it just looks, well, she's coming, he's going, there isn't much difference, but for you, there is a lot of difference. So th the third of the Satipatthana areas is a huge and crucial piece. It's the piece where we go to when we are asked, how do you feel? The fourth of the Satipatthanas is about specific contents of our experience. It is not mind state, but mind content. The term for it is tamma. And meaning, um, the term Dhamma has two meanings here. One of them is, um, it's a plural with a long A. It's not the Dhamma of the Buddha. That would be his teaching. But it's the Dhamma with, uh, in the sense of phenomena. States, but content of mind. Thought, concepts, ideas, um, any object of mind is a Dhamma. So that's one reason why this fourth category is called uh, mind state, or mind, uh, not mind state, sorry, mind content. The second meaning of the term Dhamma is absolutely untranslatable. Uh, dhamma is uh, the term for a category of which Buddhist traditions think it is useful to apply to the experience of a human being. Yeah? So it refers to specific groups of categories that Buddhist teaching thinks are necessary to contemplate. These groups are, are 
for example, the five khandas I just mentioned, the five aspects of experience, the five hindrances are such a group of dhammas, the seven awakening factors are such a group of dhammas, the six sense fields, the ayatanas I just mentioned before, those would be categories that Buddhist teaching thinks it makes sense to use these categories to think about the world. Yeah? They're useful th think tools when we meet experience. So, what is left, will you ask? And in fact, nothing is left. All of your experience fits into these four categories. That's why this thing is a map of all of our experience. Think of those four areas as uh, not too separate. You know, you don't get four buckets. And then all of your experiences either in this bucket or in that bucket. When you get an, an event in your experience, it always courses through all four of those dimensions. So you never get one Satipatthana alone. Okay? Think of this like TV channels. I don't know what TV channels you have here in, in the US, but just let's call them for simplicity's sake, channel one, two, three, four. So um, like with TV, these channels are broadcasting all the time. But what makes you tune into a particular channel is your mindfulness. Yeah. So you, by tuning into one of these channels, you choose what type of experience you prioritize, what type of experience you give center stage in your relating to your experience. Yeah. So Buddhist teachings suggest it makes a sense to get a distinction between these two, four areas. Just to know, I am now dealing with a physical sensation. I am now dealing with something that is pleasurable or displeasurable. To know, I am now, this is a mood, you know. This is an impulse that's coming up. I am now dealing with a chitta, a chitta type experience. Or I am now dealing with thought. This is channel four. I'm actually thinking. Already to know this is immensely useful because, uh, you know, usually when we don't choose where our attention goes, our attention goes to places that we are habituated. In most cases, it goes to channel four. That's where the story happens. The story is me. You know? I am the narrative. I am the drama. I am the important thing here. Me and my life. Me and what I want. Me and what I never got. Me and what I've been deprived of. Me and where I succeed in. Um, me as opposed to you. So we have a lot of conditioning from our educational systems and from our habits to end up in channel four. Yes, we, we pay attention to the body. We like it to be comfortable. We enjoy it when the body has pleasure. We pay attention to it if it has pain. But frankly, for most of the time, for most of the people I know, they're pretty bored with their bodies if they're neither experiencing pleasure or pain. There's a huge piece in the middle where most of us probably prefer not paying attention to how you digest your supper or, you know... The, those gentle peristaltic movements that take place right now in your abdomen. You know, this is generally not something that you find overt fascination or you don't really pay attention to what's happening in your renal cortex, cortices or so. Or 
you, yeah, we all want to feel if the disease body feels warm, feels fed. Uh, we love pleasure. I hope you love sex. Uh, um, you love things to enjoy. Um, you know, we differ how we enjoy, how much and how intense and all this. We can have widely diverging opinions about what is pleasing to us, but that we seek to maximize the experience of comfort and pleasure, I would expect all of us share that to some extent. Yeah. We pay attention if the body hurts, if it is sick, if it is uh, injured, but there is a huge segment in between where we generally don't pay attention, where we prefer having ideas, following ideas, following our thoughts. But even that seems slightly tricky, you know, where we're not as unanimous that thinking our stuff is actually pleasing. Those experiments they did three, three years ago, the Boston Globe spoke about it two years ago. The task was to sit in a chair and basically think something to yourself. That was the task. Not even meditate or beware. Just think. And um, then there was this little device that was giving... Uh, hits of electric current that were clearly painful. This was demonstrated to the um, people who did the experiment. And then they were left with that little piece of equipment that could give them electric hits and the task to sit there 15 minutes in a chair, not read, not play with their smartphones, and just think something of their choice. 60% uh, of all, 60%, more than 60% of all the men used this electric device and inflicted something painful on themselves <laughs> in preference to just sit there and think something of their choice. And uh, over, over one third of the women did that as well. Yeah. So just sitting in a chair and thinking doesn't seem to be such a terribly attractive prospect. Not attractive enough that we wouldn't feel tempted to do something which is in a proven way painful to us. Yeah. This is quite, we're quite strange people. Yeah. One, one guy used these things 90 times in 15 minutes. Yeah. So think about that the wandering mind is a painful mind. Yeah. So Body plays a central role, and when we meditate, all Buddhist meditation traditions, in fact, all meditation traditions I, I'm aware of, have understood the centrality of somatic experience. So channel one, somatic experience, is something we cultivate as a refuge in our satipatthana practice. We never really go away from that first satipatthana. The second one, Channel two, that pleasure, that's very, uh, that's a neat, that's a neat channel. We love being there, but it's, things are very short, you know. Pleasure experiences, they spike and then they're over. It goes very quick. So we keep, we generally are more preoccupied, not with experiencing and appreciating pleasure, but we're, we're uh, much preoccupied with anticipating getting the hit, yeah. And very quickly it will become more attractive to anticipate the hit rather than actually getting the hit. Addiction research tells us people don't get addicted to gratification. They get addicted to anticipated gratification. Yeah. Addicted, uh, anticipated gratification gets your dopamine system going, yeah. while actual gratification is more of an opioid pro process. Yeah. It's a different part of your brain. 
the addiction thing kicks in on the dopamine, on the anticipation. In fact, we can get addicted to stuff we have long stopped liking. Yeah, that's the really sad thing. Yeah. There's nothing under the sun you couldn't get addicted to. There's a German <clears throat> neuroscientist who uh, made a very playful example of how you uh, develop an addiction pattern to sunsets. Yeah. Uh, it's, it goes something like this. You start off appreciating sunsets, and then you find yourself uh, looking forward, going to areas where you have really good long views. And you find yourself parking your car in the bay so that you can actually linger there and see the sun going down. Your ultimate hit is uh, a plane ride westward, you know, when you... <laughs> <laughs> you know, for beginners, you can say Amsterdam to, to Exeter, which is direct, directly into the, you know, western sinking sun, which is delightful. For, you know, but you obviously could do that... Uh, more, more programmed, and you go for a long-haul flight, and you could eke out 14 hours of sunset, you know, as the sort of ecstasy of your addiction. So the problem is not the sunset. The problem is that you're beginning to think about sunsets when you don't have any sunsets. The problem is that you begin to anticipate when you will have your next sunset and where you will, what you will do and how good it will feel. And you begin to organize your life around sunsets. You begin to um, devalue the rest of your life because it, it doesn't hit the same spot. You begin to strategize, um, and this becomes bigger and bigger and bigger in your life. Yeah? So that was the addictional pattern. And it's clear it sounds harmless enough with sunsets, but we recognize ourselves in this. Yeah? We be, this begins to become an organizing principle in our lives. So Vedana is a powerful force in our lives. Even if you've never heard the word, um, it still operates. It operates right now in your mind. Every moment of our experience, every event in our experience has a hedonic flavor. Sometimes it is pronounced and we recognize it, anticipate it, appreciate it. Sometimes it is subtle and we may not even be aware that it is there, but Every event in your experience has a hedonic flavor, as it has a somatic flavor, by the way. Every event in our experience, channel three, has a mood flavor. You know, we're never neutral. We always have a mood. There is always something there. We're always in a state. That state has deep implications. Our well-being, our self-image, our perceptual functioning, you know, we're, we're always in a situation, and in that situation, we're, we're hungry or not. If we're hungry, then a plate of spaghetti looks very different to us than if we're not hungry. Yeah. The objective value of a plate of spaghetti, uh, we never get. If you're hungry, then that looks a lot more attractive than if you've already eaten two of them. If you're forced to eat another one, you're probably looking at this with nausea and retching. Yeah? So you never actually have a continued relationship to a world out there because you keep being in a, diff in a variety of different states, in a variety of different needs, and those needs inform how this world looks to you. Yeah. So mood, channel three, is crucial. 
and learning to be with moods, learning to identify moods, learning to purify moods, learning to cultivate qualities that are unifying, that are freeing the mind is, is a key piece of Satipatthana practice. Channel four, a lot of action there. The movement uh, in channel four is fast. It is highly associative and it's always narrative. It always tells me a story. It's discursive. Yeah. So Satipatthana exercises suggest a number of things. A, to identify these areas in our life. That's tonight's project, you know. Being able to be clear, this is about body. You know. I'm hot. This is a somatic experience. This is a channel one type experience. Um, this is unpleasant. Being hot right now is unpleasant. This is a, this is a hedonic experience. I experience a degree of displeasure dis, dis about this. You know? The evaluation that takes place very, very quickly. Now, this evaluation is not through choice. It's not volitional. That's an important piece. You don't actually have a choice whether you experience something as pleasant or as unpleasant. One of the few things in Buddhist teaching, so much in Buddhist teaching, is all intentional. You know, it's all about volition. It's all about cognitive forces of the mind. But Vedana is not. Vedana, you don't actually have a choice. What you get as pleasant or what you get as unpleasant has nothing to do with ethics. It has nothing to do with morals. It has nothing to do with choice. The only choice you have is how honest are you going to be, whether you like it or whether you are pleased by it or whether you are displeased by it. It's a key piece. Channel 3 will, if you find it pleasing and, or in the case of being hot, find it displeasing, it is quite possible that what is somatically hot, what is hedonically displeasing becomes affectively a source for a grumpy mood, yeah, or impatience. I gotta get out of here, or yeah. It translates now. It translates into a state of mind. Yeah. We don't just have a topical bodily experience. We don't just have an evaluation of that bodily experience as unpleasant. We're now having a mood. Yeah. I'm getting stroppy, or I'm getting impatient, or I feel helpless or I start to hate the guys who make me sit here. Yeah. You know, the, the chair of the board who keeps soliloquizing because he, he likes himself, he likes to hear himself, while I just sit here and gradually dissolve in a puddle of sweat and are forced to bear an unpleasant feeling by his power and his uh, unfeeling thoughtlessness. Yeah. You know, I'm now I'm not just having a discomfortable body sensation, I'm having a highly uncomfortable mental state, you know, co compounded with rage and childhood memories of elder brothers and, and so forth. Yeah, and, you know, I'm, I'm really, uh, things are getting worse. And I start, on channel four, I start having corresponding hate fantasies going, yeah. Um, I, depending on, you know, what kind of temperate I am, or so I... I I, I wish he would just self-combust, or uh, I, I think of, of you know, 
he might just disappear, his big imposing chair might just drop out of the floor and or uh, I, I pray for an alien abduction of his person or, you know, depending on, you know, all kinds of things can come up into your mind when you, when you sit there in a puddle of sweat, apparently at the beck and call of this unfeeling guy holding power over the meeting. Um, so you realize how things move from channel to channel and I end up with a story. Uh, the story is the story of my helplessness, which goes seemingly without the change from my early childhood right up to this board meeting and is unlikely to change. There will always be some powerful guy who keeps me here, chained to my chair, sweating, dissolving, helpless. Yeah? So often enough, Satipatthana or Sati practice can help us negotiate that. Say, okay, where does it start? Can I stay with an unpleasant physical sensation, cold heat? Yes, it doesn't kill me. It's not really pleasant, true. But I don't need to go down into my childhood. I don't need to project in this guy, uh, project uh, intentionality onto this guy. I don't need to put on my whole story onto this. I could just stay and learn to bear the unpleasantness of the heat or, the, uh, or just the unpleasantness of not being at ease in my body right now. If I'm willing to do this, end of story. No drama, no big mood states, no hate fantasies. My life is a lot easier. I just have an unpleasant physical sensation. I have an unpleasant hedonic experience and I can let it end there. I don't have to ride the whole carousel. So being able to make choices, this map should help us to make better choices where to place our attention because that's where we have a choice. We always have the choice where to place attention. Even if it seems we don't have choices, we have a choice how we relate to this experience. If we learn to move from channel four, where the story is most rampant, to move back to the channel one, where we simply have maybe a degree of boredom or a degree of indifference or a degree of discomfort, as in my little example with the sweating person, um, if we can do that, our life becomes a lot more simpler. Yeah. We can spare ourselves a lot of drama, a lot of involvement. So the use of this map is to make sure that we are not helpless in respect to our habitual patterns, how we attend to things. Yeah. And uh, you will find that much of meditation practice consists basically of switching back from channel four where I get lost because there are many things happening, thoughts, they're moving fast, they have many, many friends. Uh, back to channel one, where the movement generally is slower. Body sensations don't associate like thoughts. So the kettle of fish I'm dealing with on channel one is a very different kettle of fish. Channel four is more piranha kind of territory. And <laughs> channel one is more like goldfish kind of territory. Yeah? or catfish maybe, or koi carp, or whatever you like, yeah? something sedate. Um, so it may be a l when I'm willing to be prepared to, to hold something unpleasant and hold it in the body, the very same experience is actually a lot more manageable than when I have the whole angst and the whole childhood history that kicks in on Channel 4. 
So learning to make choices where to usefully place attention is a crucial piece of the Satipatthana training. We will go into various exercises uh, in the coming days, but for tonight, uh, I wanted to read you a couple of quotes. One of them is <clears throat> a very terse version of those four establishments of mindfulness. This is canonical uh, Satipatthana text. The four establishings of mindfulness, what for? Here, a practitioner with regard to the body dwells, contemplating the body. She is ardent, comprehends clearly, is possessed of mindfulness, and overcomes both desire for and discontent with the world. With regard to hedonic tone, he dwells, contemplating feeling tones. He is ardent, comprehends clearly, is possessed of mindfulness, and overcomes both desire for and discontent with the world. With regard to mind states, she dwells contemplating mind states. She is ardent, comprehends clearly, is possessed of mindfulness and overcomes both desire for and discontent with the world. With regard to mind objects, he dwells contemplating mind objects. He is ardent, comprehends clearly, is possessed of mindfulness and overcomes both desire for and discontent with the world. That is the probably shortest and tersest formulation of this. Um, I want to read you two, three very short pieces that say very, um, I believe, salient things about forms of mindfulness and forms of attention. The first passage comes from the Theravada Abhidharma tradition. What is right mindfulness? Samasati. Sati means to bear in mind or bring to mind. Sati is the state of recollecting, the state of remembering, the state of non-fading, the state of non-forgetting. Interesting. Yeah. One of the echoes of sati is the word recall, memory, recollect. Our friend John Peacock calls this recollection of the present moment. This one is from the Abhidharma Samuchaya. That's an early Indian uh, text. <clears throat> Roughly, uh, the, comp the latest compilation is in the 4th century AD. What is mindfulness, Smriti? It is non-forgetting by the mind with regard to the object experienced. Its function is non-distraction. And now, in, 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 dis in, uh, in distinction to attention, what is attention? Manasikara. It is mental tenacity. Its function consists of keeping the mind on the object. So attention function is, is tenacity, and its function is keeping the mind on the object. So it has the adherence power to stay with something. In other words, rather than just being episodically present for some things and then whoop, disappearing somewhere, it actually has staying power. Yeah? That's where the magic begins. Attention begins to become transformative and begins to become powerful when it gets fluid, when we are capable of attending to something beyond maximizing pleasure, beyond approach behavior and beyond avoidance behavior. If we're capable of having a type of attention that is independent of gratification and avoidance, okay, that's, that's where things start to really become magic. 
every genius has this type of attention. When you see people who are really good at something, you will find that they cultivate an attention on whatever they do that is generally more long, more enduring than other people. Whenever you do that in your life, whenever you stay with something long enough, you figure things out. You know, there's something that you begin to twig. You know. And much of what we miss as learning opportunities is basically because we're not deep enough, we're not patient enough, we're not observant enough, we're not having enough staying power. Yeah. We're too flitting, too speedy, too skimming, too restless, yeah. too impatient or too superficial. Or, you, know, you can name many things. Well, whenever you go into something and stay with that more closely and more just longer time beyond the gratification curve, yeah, you will understand something. Another one, very short, I'll hang them up so that you can read them later on again. Um, this here uh, identifies mindfulness as explicitly having a taming function and not just an observing function. You know? Much of mindfulness teaching is teaching mindfulness as a mere observant quality. But as you will hear from us, mindfulness is much more engaging than just observing. It's important to be able to observe, but mindfulness is not exhausted w just by ac observing activity. So. This is a passage from the Sutta Nipata, a very brief one. I do need my glasses. Oh, yeah. Whatever streams are in the world, Ajita, it is mindfulness that hinders and restrains them, and it is by wisdom that they are cut off. Whatever streams are in the world, yeah, these are the streams of energy flowing out, Whatever streams are in the world, Ajita, it is mindfulness, sati, that hinders and restrains them. And it is by wisdom that they are cut off. So, if you want to forget everything from tonight, please keep two things. One of them, mindfulness and attention, are related. You need attention to cultivate mindfulness. But they are not identical. Attention happens every moment of our conscious experience. Mindfulness is a lot more rarefied. It is something that we need to cultivate. We have something called involuntary mind attention that happens automatically, that is uh, given to us by uh, evolution. And we have something called voluntary mindfulness that is to do with our deliberate choice, what we attend to. That needs to be cultivated and trained. That second type of attention is the raw material for mindfulness. It's when that attention, that voluntary attention, becomes fluid, yeah, has enough staying power to stick with something for a while, to follow a changing pattern, a thought, a melody, a process inside or outside. When it is able to do that, it becomes possible with a few other add-ons that this becomes mindfulness. These add-ons have to do with empathy. They have to do with ethic. And they have to do with a type of purpose. What makes mindfulness different from attention is that it is always geared to purification, clarification, and awakening. 
What makes mindfulness different from attention is that it is always ethical. You never have clinically neutral mindfulness. Yeah. Mindfulness is always ethical. You're always in an ethical relationship when you're mindful. Even if you're absolutely alone, you're still in relationship to your own experience. and That is an ethical experience. Um, mindfulness is connected with wisdom. It turns up the things that are emergent. It is that which pushes out the boundaries between the known and into the unknown. Mindfulness tells you always things that are not yet fully known. Okay. Attention doesn't necessarily do any of these things. You know, Anything you do with some focus is, is kind of attention. That doesn't mean it's ethical. You can be highly unethical while being totally attentive. If you have a habit of cleaning bank safes, I would recommend you do so very, very attentively because uh, your chances of not getting caught are higher. But that doesn't mean that your activity is an ethical activity. Yeah? It is not particularly connected with liberation or with awakening. In fact, it jeopardizes uh, some of these projects. So the fact that we can attend to things does not make this a mindful activity. For attention to become mindfulness, it needs fluidity, and it needs to be connected to ethics, to Brahma-viharas, yeah? to wisdom, uh, and preferably to the body. Good. We'll follow uh, up on this for tonight. It's enough. Thank you for your kind attention. I'll post this up so that for those of you who uh, are interested, you can read it up again. Yeah. Please stretch your legs, and uh, what do we do usually at this time? Go for walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.